All right, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and there's a QR code up there. I'm not trying to make everybody swap over, but if you want to look at the same text of Scripture I'm looking at, you can scan that with your phone, your iPad, and probably go right, not right exactly to it, but it'll take you to the New Testament, and you can find Romans from there probably. Romans chapter number 8. Now, my advice to you as I start this sermon is to buckle your seatbelts. Because there's a lot of things I'm going to say in this sermon. And there's, man, I wrestled around with how to write this sermon. And I thought, well, I should write a good sermon. Then I thought, let's not spoil them. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, there's a lot of things that can be said from this passage. You can use it as a springboard into so many different things. But it's always better just to deal with the text as it is and um, try to follow the authorial intent as much as we can understand it. And so it is going to be, it's going to be quite, a, quite a trip. We're going to go from verse 28 to 39. And um, it, it, this passage of Scripture is so tasty. It just, it's just so wonderful. And um, I hope I can do it justice this morning. Now let's have a reading here, verse 28 down to 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we, let's, let's make a prayer together. Father... I know the text that's set before me here, and I pray, Lord, you'd help me to preach it, you know, with preach it correctly and preach it for all it's worth, Father. And I pray that every Christian who's here this morning will leave here pretty happy that they're Christians. And I pray that every person who's here who's not a Christian will want to become a Christian before this sermon is over. 
And for those who leave here not being Christians, I pray that they would drive away from this house of worship really thinking about becoming Christians. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And I ask these things for your glory. Amen. Now, the apostle has told us here about this thing called future glory in the middle part of chapter 8. And he says in verse 18 that I consider the sufferings of this present time as not being worthy of being compared with the future glory. So, whatever you're going through, the apostle says, it's not even worth being mentioned on the same page or in the same breath as what is promised for Christians, as what's in the future for Christians. The future existence for a person who knows Christ as your Savior is so glorious, so magnificent, that nothing else matters. It's going to be totally eclipsed. Now, when I was a kid, I thought I knew what real joy was because we had Saturday morning cartoons. We had, uh, 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 what was, not, 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 rice, not, not Rice Krispies, but uh, uh, not Frosted Flakes. It was the Flintstones cereal. Fruity Pebbles. And on Saturdays, my mom slept in so she couldn't tell me only one bowl. I'd get the Jethro Bowl out, you know, and load that sucker up. And Remember Jethro Bodine? Anybody? Man, I, and so I thought I knew what joy was. And then I got a car. And then I really knew what joy was. Nothing quite like driving down the road, you know, at 150 miles an hour. Police cars behind you. <laughs> I'm teasing. Never had a car that fast. <laughs> so it was impossible. <laughs> The police did show up sometimes. <laughs> and then I, then I found fishing. You know, just all these, I thought I knew what joy was. But it's like life just brings you bigger and bigger joys. And now I've been married for 25 years to Valerie and my lovely wife. We've had five kids together. And I know there are some very magnificent joys that come from being a husband and being a father. I mean, there, there's just all kinds. And it eclipses all previous joys. And the hard times are eclipsed too by present joy, by present glory. But the apostle says that what you have as a Christian, what's marked out for you in the future, is more glorious than you can imagine. He says there is no suffering of the present time that is, to, that is comparable to the glory that, be, will, that will be revealed in the future. Now that is a fabulous promise. That is not just a fabulous promise. That sounds impossible. Because sometimes our current suffering is so horrible, is so rotten. Now the the guarantor of this future glory, the one who guarantees this is going to be true, is God Almighty. And that's why you have in Romans 8, 28 through 30, you have this declaration of who God is and what God can do and the power that He has. Who is guaranteeing us this fabulous future glory? Who's telling us how great it's going to be? Is it me? Pipsqueak Terry? Pipsqueak Apostle Paul? Who is promising future glory that eclipses all current suffering? Who promises that? God Almighty. Well, who is this God Almighty? Who is the Lord strong and mighty? Well, He's the creator of all things. 
He's the sovereign ruler of all things. He's the maker. He's the creator. He's the doer. He's the first cause of all things. The guarantor of this future glory is God Almighty. And this God Almighty is working out His purpose in this world and in our lives. That's what we have in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. I was tempted to go through all 17 instances in the New Testament that say that God has a purpose, a plan, a design, and he is working it out in this world. And he's involving everything that he wants to involve in it to achieve his purpose. God's purpose. Now, yesterday, NASA, who was a powerhouse of industry and technology and money, had to call off the launch of the moonshot yesterday. This is not the first time they've had to do it. In my lifetime as a kid, they've canceled lots of shuttles, lots of launches because of various things like weather, technical difficulties, Somebody gets sick and can't be there to fulfill their role. So even these titans of, of industry and technology, they, they say, we're going to launch next week. But they can't even pull it off because they're limited by their ability. They can't promise tomorrow. They can't promise it's going to go off without a hitch. Because they're not almighty. They're not sovereign. They ain't God. But God can do whatever he chooses to do. And in this world in which we live, God is working out his purpose. And this is a thing to really think about. His purpose. His plan. His desires in this world. Read the Old Testament. You see God doing what he wants to do. You see God making promises that are impossible to be fulfilled and then pulling it off. With just a word. With just a word. So this God who says our purpose, his purpose is being worked out, it's going to work out really good for those who love him. And that's to whom the apostle is writing. To those who are believers in Jesus Christ, to those who are lovers of God. And God says to them, and this is the alternate reading, that God works all things together for their good to those who love him. Now, in verse 29, the apostle used the word predestinate to say this is something that is predetermined. It's foreordained. It's going to happen. And God has done this. He said this is how it's going to be, and he makes it happen. And only God can do that because he has unlimited power. Now, just so everybody knows, there are the three omnis about God. God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. Nothing is restrained from him. He can do whatever he pleases. Just for an example, because we live near water, and water is so great, isn't it? So great. When Jesus, who is God in flesh, when he comes to a a body of water, and his dudes are in a boat way out there in the middle, and he wants to get to them, what does Jesus do? He walketh upon the water. He, he, he walks across the sea. Nobody else can do that. 
When I was a kid, you know, when you grow, when you grow up in a pastor's home, you're always trying to recreate the miracles. Me and my brother were standing by a river one day, and we were wanting to cross it. My dad said, I wish we could find a way to cross it. My brother comes up beside me, shoves me aside, and says, step aside, Aaron. Throws up his arms to part the sea, you know, to part the river. Me and my brother, we go swimming, and we try to run across the water. You ever try to run across the water? Get back on land, just get, get some speed and try to zing, see how far you can go? I've tried and tried and tried. Never can do it. But Jesus does it. He walks on the water. He says to the sea, peace be still. He, he is the, om, the omnipotent one. Nothing is limited from him. So the apostle is telling us that the God who is in control of all things and always has been in control of all things, that this God has a purpose and a plan, and that plan will be fulfilled. And part of that is this future glory. Now, the plan of God is comprehensive, and it includes a lot of really good stuff, and it includes a lot of really bad stuff. I think that a a natural reading of Scripture reveals that to us. When the children of Israel left Egypt, who were they following? Moses, who was following who? God. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. That's the Lord, we're following him. Easy to spot. Go that way. Who led them into the rock in a hard place at the Red Sea? Who led them to the edge of a sea they couldn't cross? But they couldn't go left, they couldn't go right. They're hemmed in and has Pharaoh chasing them down. Who led them there? God did. Who led the children of Israel into the wilderness, into places where there was no water? Who led them there? God did. Who led the children of Israel through a dry, barren land to a body of water that when they got there, the water could not be drinking? (laughs) It could not be drunk. It could not be consumed because it was nasty water. It's bitter water. Who led them there? God did. Who sent his only begotten son into the world? To be betrayed, mocked, ridiculed, murdered. Who did that? God did it. So God, in God's comprehensive purpose and plan, there are some things that are very pleasant, and there are things that are not pleasant. But this is God's purpose. And if you doubt this, and, and, I, and I realize that sometimes people really It's a difficult thing to consider because of the way we we understand God or think about God. Sometimes our our thoughts of God, to quote Luther, are too human. We don't really see it in the right perspective. Now, if you doubt this, I, I would just say simply, look at the book of Revelation, which is considered by most people to be all things in the future, and ask yourself if that's God's plan. Just read it sometime and say, is that what God wants to happen? And the answer is yes. And the second question is, is any of that stuff going to be stopped? Or is it going to be fulfilled just as God said? Think about these things. This is what Scripture says. Now, as we face and experience life as believers, 
We must learn to rest in the purposes of God, that God has a purpose. One of my favorite texts from Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean or rest upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Don't lean on your understanding because it's going gonna, it's gonna to let you down. You have to trust in him, trust in God. Trusting God. Now, sometimes you say something like the people, they'll say, well, your life looks like it's pretty doggone peachy. What do you really know about suffering? I'm going to say this to you. I do not know as much about suffering as many of you guys do. I don't know. But I am pretty sure that I'm suffering in ways you don't know about. And I'm mad at you for thinking that I've never suffered. (laughs) We all have these different levels of sufferings we go through. And we have to learn to trust God. God, why must it be thus all the day long? In Psalm 73, it's almost verbatim, the same kind of thing, where the the psalmist says, "I, I looked at the wicked and they're having a great time. And I don't like it. I'm getting it in the neck over here day after day, and and they're buying bigger bass boats. They're buying bigger houses. They're catching bigger fish. Their kayaks never flip over. (laughs) They never lose their fishing lures. We have to learn to trust in Him. Now, Read the, and you can just read the Old Testament. And you can see how God does these things. One particular instance is in Isaiah 44, 24 to 28. I put down here to say, look at that. But I'm just going to tell you what it says. It's where God says to Isaiah, I'm the one, I'm going to tell Cyrus, a pagan king, to send people and money back to rebuild my city, Jerusalem, a place of worship. Now, to put put that in context, it would be like a bunch of atheist people having a fundraiser, raising a million dollars, and giving it to a church to to rebuild their building. That's what God does. And he calls Cyrus my shepherd, my servant, he calls him. So God has this big purpose he's working out. Now, the main point of what the apostle is saying in 28 to 30 is to show believers that the God who saves from sin and promises fabulous future glory, that he can keep his promise. And he can do it because God controls everything. Now, this is something for you to think about. If you're ever, if you're ever in a, man, a managerial or leadership type position, you can have a plan, you can have objectives, you can have goals for whatever you're working on. Now, if you're going to make the dream work, what is, it, what is it that makes the dream work? Teamwork. So, you got to have a team, you got to have a dream, then you have success, right? Now, the, there's, 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 some, <laughs> there's some parts of that that uh, you got to have a good team, right? you got to have people you can depend on, trust on, rely on. So you can have the best dream, 
the best plan, but it can be frustrated by the team. <laughs> I went to a, a pastor's conference one time, and this pastor, I'd, I've, never, I've, only been, I, I've never pastored a church where I had people worked for me, but I've been in churches where I was just one, one person on staff with other people. And uh, this guy was giving a talk. This pastor was, he said, you have to guard your staff against staff infection. Because people on your staff can really make things bad. You know, and if you've ever been on a pastoral staff, you might have some idea what that could be like. It can be a real nightmare. So God, in order to be sure his purposes are all fulfilled, he controls all things. He controls everything. He's not, he's not dependent on anybody else to make sure it happens. He makes sure it happens. God controls all things. Now, there are, there are a lot of implications to that. But I think, I think the big premise is true. And there are other questions that may come to your mind, which I'll be happy to talk to you about or, help, or, or think through with you because I don't have all the answers about that. I know that big premise is true, though. God controls all things. And this includes everything without exception And I know not everybody agrees with that kind of thing. But I ask you to consider what Scripture says because the Scriptures may change your mind about some of those things. It may may temper your view a little bit. Now, the rest of the sermon. You ready? Now, with God's predestinating power in our mind, with God's predestinating power in the forefront of our mind, with God's sovereign rule over all things, Look at verses 31 to 39. If God is for us, who can be against us? What kind of God are we talking about? What kind of God who, if he is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. What kind of God are we talking about? Some mamby-pamby, limp-wristed God? Or a God who is God? A God who speaks and the rock shoots forth water. The God who speaks and the dead rise. The God who says, let there be light. And there's light. The God who raises the dead. When Jesus Christ went to the grave of Lazarus, he'd been laying in that grave four days dead. And his sisters, when he said, let's roll away the stone, they said, no, he stinks. And Jesus said, roll the stone away. The stone is rolled away. And Jesus just says, Lazarus, come forth. And who cometh forth? Lazarus. Lazarus comes out of there. This is is the God whom we serve. So if this God is for you, who can be against you? Eugene Peterson's The Message says this. With God on our side like this, how can we lose? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? Well, you can't. You can't lose. Because future glory is promised to you. This is the God that we serve. In verse 32, this God 
who can do all things, he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So if the God of all creation, if this sovereign, magnificent, glorious God, if he would give his own son to die for you, who are just a piece of phlegm on the bib of humanity, if he would give his son for you, of course he's going to give you more things. He's already given you the greatest thing. He's given you Christ. And so the fact that glory is going to belong to you, why would he withhold his glory from us? And then in verses 33 and 34, the apostle says, Who can bring any charge against, notice the possessive, God's elect, God's people, God's saved, God's loved ones? Who can lay anything to their charge? It is God who justifies. It is God who declares the innocent. It is God who says, you're free to go. Your sins are gone. It's God who does that. If God's declared you innocent, how can can anyone call you guilty? And then beyond that, in the heavenly realm, there is God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ, Scripture says, he ever liveth to make intercession for who? For those who believe. For those who believe. God is committed to being sure you make it into heaven. Then 35 through 39. Who then? Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate us from it? Is there anything that we can face or go through that will cause God to not love us? Does going through any of these things mean that God doesn't love us? Does suffering mean God doesn't love us? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Are those things... Do those things mean God doesn't love you? No. Because he's promised you future, eternal, unending glory. If God God loves you, he's always loved you and he won't ever stop loving you. There's nothing that can cause him to stop. 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure, he says. Now, who's writing these words? It's the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, his life has been rugged. Betrayed, beaten, stoned, beaten with rods. Stoned, you know, the theologians are kind of, they're not sure if Saul actually was stoned to death and and then was resurrected. There's these different views. But he was beaten so thoroughly that they left him for dead outside Lystra. They stone him, and they think he's dead. And after they they done stoning him, he gets up and what's he do? He goes back in the city. This is this is who's writing this. Paul says in Corinthians that I was cast into the sea. I've been naked in the sea. I've been hungry. I've starved. He says all these things he's faced, but he knows that God loves him. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. See, everything that's big, everything that's powerful, everything that could disrupt your life and happiness, Paul says none of those things are going to change the way God feels about you. None of those things. 
None of those things shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's loved you with this everlasting love and it will never stop. Now this is so fabulous to know that this is, this is essentially the, the broader theme of sovereignty as Paul talks about here is that the God who created this world is devoted to you who believe in him. And as you really start thinking about God's purposes, in my mind, Revelation chapter 4 comes up where it says, all things have been created and are created for his pleasure. So God has made this whole world. Everything that we know that exists, God has created it so that he could show his love and grace to sinners. This is this. If we didn't have this stage, we wouldn't know God like we do. Now, this is a great truth. The sufferings will be eclipsed by future glory. The sovereign God of all things is going to be sure. He, he is the surety. He is the guarantor of this promise. Now, this is a great truth. We have a great God. He's greatly committed to us. Now, here's the negative side. This love of God is only for those who believe in him. This unfailing, never-ending, devoted love of God is only for those who believe in Jesus as their Savior. That's the only people who are going to experience this. In a general sense, God has this big benevolent attitude towards all men. But that's going to come to an end. In the final judgment, in the last day, there's going to be a final judgment. All people will be gathered before the throne of judgment. And everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be ushered into fabulous future glory. Every person who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are going to go into the exact opposite. They're going to go into the lake of fire. Will they be tormented day and night forever? Now, in my own, this is my own mind, my own thinking. Is it, is it in that moment when those people, if God loves them, if God has a benevolent spirit towards them, in that moment, it ends. But for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the love of God never ends and only is demonstrated in bigger and bigger and bigger ways. Now, Valerie and I, we've been married a long time, 237 years. <laughs> Just, we're, all, we're almost to 25, almost to 25 years. When I married Valerie, I have no idea how much money I had in the bank, but I know it wasn't much because I sold my truck to pay for a refrigerator and a honeymoon. Greater love hath no man than this, <laughs> that he selleth his truck for his wife. <laughs> so we were, we, were, we were broke, right? How many, how many of you guys started out broke? Isn't it great? Love grows best in little houses with few walls to separate. <laughs> but over the years, 
I've been able to, we've made more money over the years. You know, your income kind of tends to go up as you work harder, get smarter. And then you can show your love for your wife in greater ways. So when I, when I first bought her, or the, first enga- the first little engagement ring I bought her was so small, it barely qualified to be a diamond. It was a real diamond, but it was pretty small. I sold a couple guns to buy it. <laughs> and just a few years ago, I was able to take her down to the jewelry store and buy her a little, a bigger ring. This one qualified as a diamond. <laughs> and I've been able to do lots more things for her because I love her. And when you get to the heavenly realm, God, Scripture says that my, that, that uh, eye has not seen nor mind conceived of the things that God has prepared for those who love him going to blow your mind it's going it, it's going to it's going to be more than you can comprehend in order to take the glory in order to stand the the joy you're going to need a glorified body because if you experience that kind of joy and glory in your body you have right now you die of a heart attack you're gonna have a new body First John says that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall know him for we shall be like him. New body, new world, new, new existence, new intimacy with God. But that's only for those who are believers. Only faith in Christ saves. Only faith in Christ justifies. Nothing else can do it. Not baptism. Not communion, not the mass, not good deeds, not church attendance, not being born in a Christian home or serving in a Christian church or being the son of a Baptist preacher. Nothing is going to save you except putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ on purpose. You have to do it. It's an intentional thing. You have to do it for yourself. Nobody else can do it for you. You you have to do it. Put your faith in Jesus. And if you don't put your faith in Christ, you're going to find yourself outside of God's love for all time. Now to the skeptic or to the atheist or agnostic, or maybe even a pagan who might be among us today. To you who do not believe, I say this. If the Bible is true, if the Bible is true, If, if the Bible is true, that means that for all eternity, you're going to suffer in a way you cannot even dream. As I understand the word of God, the suffering is real and it's without end. If you don't put your faith in Christ, if the Bible's true, you're toast. Literally. You, 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 you have nothing to look forward to. So I say to you, believe in Jesus or perish. Let me give you a reason why you should do that. It's because the sovereign God who has purposed all things has orchestrated a lot of things for this day to take place. 
You're here, and I'm here. I know the path that got me here. God working and moving to stick me here. And I don't know how God got you here, but I know we, all, we, we are all here now, aren't we? And God wants you to hear this message. God wants you to know that he loves you. And he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. So it's for you. But you think about that. It's no accident you're here. No accident. Because God is working out his purpose in this world. Now let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a second. You might be here this morning. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God has you in his hands. You're going to be delivered into eternal glory. It's going to come to, come to pass for you. It's going to... Fear not. It's going to happen. Now, you might be here this morning, and you are not a Christian. You never put your faith in Jesus Christ. I assume most of the time that people know what I, what I mean when I say that. Put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean when I say that. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I understand that to mean something like this. That if you know that you have not put your faith in Jesus. That you call upon him and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. That's calling upon the name of the Lord. The word believe means to entrust. Entrusting myself to you. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. If you're here and you're not a Christian. That's what you need to do so you can become a Christian. Call upon Jesus. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that will call upon him. And whoever calls upon him will not be ashamed that they called upon him. He will save. You don't have to pass a a knowledge test to be saved. Put your faith in Christ and he'll save you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you take these few words of this sermon. And I pray that the saints will be lifted up and the sinners will be converted. And I pray, Lord, that I hope some people prayed and called upon you to save them. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.